0: And so I began to have a 180-degree conversion and began to look forward to the experience of taking the oral histories because these were women who had great love and passion, energy, resilience, capacities for life and survival that many of us don't have, but all of us can learn from.
1: You're listening to To Preserve and Protect. Contemporary Issues in Irish Cultural Heritage A podcast series from the Royal Irish Academy funded by the Heritage Council To listen back to other episodes in the series check out our page on the Royal Irish Academy's website at ria.ie Dr Catherine O'Donnell is Associate Professor in the History of Ideas at the University College Dublin School of Philosophy Her podcast is entitled The Accidental Oral Historian.
0: I suppose I could describe myself as an accidental oral historian. Um, I began taking oral histories of Magdalene women back in 2010. Initially, it was a pilot project uh, because I was involved with Justice for Magdalene's campaign, and I felt the acute need to take the histories of the women who'd been incarcerated in the Magdalen Laundries because there was such an intense gap and silence, an imposition of secrecy on their horrendous experiences. And I felt, I suppose Kant would describe it as obligation. I felt a huge sense of obligation to... Inquire of these women, would they be generous enough to give us all their oral testimony? So, when I say it was a a pilot project, it really was just that at the start I felt I would work with my Justice for Magdalene's campaign colleagues, Maeve O'Rourke, Claire McGettrick, Jim Smith, Mary Steed, and we would gather a half dozen, nine or ten oral histories and show the, the rich feasibility of the kinds of testimony that we were getting from these women and then offer it over to some social scientist who was well trained in oral history to continue the project further. So in that sense I, I feel I was an accidental oral historian. My background is history of ideas specifically 18th century Ireland. I write a lot about people who've been dead over 250 years so actually facing living people with uh, a tape recorder was, was was a daunting experience. Also, too, I felt I was an accidental oral historian because what I was collecting were stories of intense trauma. And again, that was far outside my professional training. And I found that I became ill uh, once I had taken an oral history from a Magdalene woman. What I found was that I had to... Scheduled the taking these oral histories so that i would be able to recover for two sometimes three days afterwards so i kept wishing that somebody else would take on this project i kept trying to kind of persuade other people that this was a project worth doing because i didn't feel well equipped to be the person to take it and then it just became me i've worked very hard on how to deal with the traumatic experiences that that I seemed to be picking up vicariously from the women I interviewed. And I began to realise that actually my training as a cultural historian was in fact not a bad training to equip me to approach the women because I was deeply, deeply interested in how their histories were going to be heard within the broader stream of histories and stories that the Irish nation officially tells itself. And these were stories that were going to utterly disrupt and cause us to rethink anew all of the pretty stories we tell ourselves about our history and what it is to be an Irish person. So these were incredibly valuable uh, documents, incredibly valuable witness statements that everybody needed to hear. And I, I understood that coming from my academic background. And also... I just began to think less about myself and become allow myself to be more in awe of the amazing people, the women who had survived Magdalene Laundries, their generosity, their resilience, their desire to survive and their capacity for for life. Because I'm quite sure that if I... Experienced what they experienced in those horrendous institutions, that I would have far more damage than many of the women I, I sat across. And so I began to have a 180 degree conversion and began to look forward to the experience of taking the oral histories because these were women who had great love and passion, energy, resilience. And capacities for life and survival that many of us, I imagine, don't have, but all of us can learn from. And so I began to apply for funding, which I was grateful to get from the Feminist Review Trust and the Irish Research Council. I hired a team in comprising Sinead Pembroke and Claire McGettrick, and we set in earnest collecting these oral histories. So the kinds of questions that we Decided that we would ask the women, we're going to lead them through not just the experience of the laundries themselves, but their lives from their early infancy and also their experiences beyond the laundry. So we wanted full life histories because that seemed to be the best way to capture and frame the actual experience of the the laundries themselves. We learned an awful lot about the laundry system from the women we learned most of these women had absolutely no idea if there were any other women surviving except themselves. So this was in the early days of the um, Justice for Magdalene's campaign before we got the state apology in 2013, and before redressing was put in place in, in May 2013. So we we were collecting histories from these women who really had no idea if they were ever going to meet another survivor. And one of the uncanny things was how they told virtually the same story of their experiences in the laundry. They talked about their shock in arriving in there. They talked about their absolute bewilderment at not even knowing that these kinds of places existed. They talked about their hair being cut, being put into uniforms, being given a religious name or a number They talked about their fear in seeing older institutionalised women and realising that if they didn't escape or get out, that this was going to be their fate. They talked about the poor living conditions, terrible food, cold dormitories, having to use a bath once a week after many others had used the same bath water. They talked about the unrelenting hard grind of the heavy work of the laundry, the bleach the smells of dirty laundry, the heaviness of having to deal with the huge industrial piles. They talked about the enforcement of silence. They talked about how they were punished if they refused to work. Um, They talked about a hole, this room that they were often put into if they refused to work. They talked about punishment if they made friendships or spoke with other girls or women. And they talked most of all about their fear and bewilderment, which was quite palpable throughout the interviews. As I say, I, I learned to take these oral histories by focusing on the incredible act of generosity that these women were telling these stories even before a state apology was in place. And quite frankly, most of them never thought that that apology was ever going to be forthcoming. And they gave these oral histories, each and every one of them, for not for my generation, not for the generations that had done them the harm, but for the younger people, as they kept saying. They wanted these oral histories to be part of a national curriculum. They have great faith in their grandchildren and the younger generations, those who have grandchildren. They have great faith in the fact that these stories will mean something to somebody and that we can learn from them. So they know themselves the value of these testimonies. And considering how Ireland has improperly dealt with our shameful legacy of incarcerating up to one percent of our population throughout most of the 20th century these oral histories become even more valuable so we know through the ryan report and the rirb the residential institution redress board that there were huge amounts of suffering in residential industrial schools We know, and we're beginning to appreciate, the kinds of suffering that happened in mother and baby homes. We are beginning to have a sense of the legacy of the suffering of all of the people who were held in these kind of network of religious state-run institutions across the 20th century of Ireland. But we still don't really know, because we have had no mechanism for giving people who were caught and held in these places the forum in which they can tell us what their experiences were like and what they've learned, what they've learned about life, what they've learned about humanity, and what they've learned about how it is to survive and what it is to have a good life. We have had a number of commissions, uh, the commission to inquire into child abuse, which led to the Ryan Report. We're having another commission now, which is to inquire into mother and baby homes. But these commissions have what survivors will call a gagging clause. So those who've gone before the Residential Institution Redress Board, they are under a penalty of a large fine if they ever again speak about their experiences um, such as they disclose to the Residential Institution Redress Board. And I think that explains in a large part why there is such a very dense silence from the survivors of those institutions. So our commissions of inquiry are designed under the 2004 Act, which set up Commission of Inquiries to swallow up all the available archive and indeed oral testimony of the people who are at the heart of these commissions of inquiry. So the archives, for example, that the commission to inquiry into mother and baby homes and other related institutions are building up all of the papers that they're getting from TUSLA and state agencies, all of the testimony that they're getting from survivors that they're inviting in to speak to the commission. None of that can ever be used again in any form of court or uh, police investigation. And it's also not available under freedom of information or data protection orders. So this is essentially creating an archive that will be silent and sealed. Unless, of course, public clamor actually realizes that what we are being denied is our history. What we are being denied is the ability to understand what has happened in the so recent past, the ability to understand the legacy of the suffering that we are all, as citizens on this island, having to deal with, whether we know it or not. There's large swathes of the population that are still suffering traumatic legacies from their time in those institutions and their families are suffering. And if we don't begin to understand how these institutions came about, how they operated, the pain and damage that they inflicted, well, then we're in grave danger of continuing the same kinds of practices that led to these privately run, publicly funded institutions that were supposed to care for the most vulnerable people in our society but inflicted large measures of pain and suffering. So in that sense, this oral history has to do much more work than most oral histories have to do in other jurisdictions. This oral history that we're collecting on the Magdalene women and that we're beginning to collect on survivors of Ireland's closed, secret, forced adoption system, which is another project I'm working on with my colleagues from Justice for Magdalene's Research, these oral histories are having to do an awful lot more important work Because the archives are being so swallowed up, because the religious orders have clamped down on their archives, even though the state paid for them to run these institutions, they're still operating as if they're private entities and can do that, can shut us out from really rich, important data as to actually what happened in these places. And the state, too, is colluding, even by making a gesture of a commission of inquiry, but actually that commission of inquiry is designed to swallow up whole all the information that we so desperately need. So this reluctant oral historian is standing in a place that is now trying to gather an archive that can stand as a bulwark and a challenge to the immense silence that's being enforced by the state on our 20th century Irish history one of the key motivations for gathering the oral histories back in 2010 was a sense that Ireland needed to begin to work in a process of restorative justice in order to repair the damage and the harm done to all of those people who've been damaged by institutional abuse in Irish society in the 20th century and that includes not only those people who were locked up in institutions but also, of course, all of the people who were damaged by the clerical abuse and the cover-ups of the Catholic Church. So restorative justice was an area that interested me greatly, and I read a lot in it. And I began to to look at countries that were in so-called transitional justice zones. So that's Northern Ireland, South Africa, many countries in Latin America. And these are countries that have declared themselves to be involved in re-establishing robust democratic participatory practices of government and uh, civic and public society following times of intense trauma, be it sectarian violence, be it apartheid, be it uh, civil war. And the more I read about these countries, the more I felt, well, the Republic of Ireland can certainly learn a lot from transitional justice mechanisms. And then I noticed that Canada and Australia had also deployed what would call restorative justice even transitional justice um, mechanisms in order to deal with their shameful legacy of abusing their original people of Australia and the native Canadians. So my colleagues and I have begun to get more involved in transitional justice in thinking it through and in working out how Ireland might apply the four principles of transitional justice to dealing with the legacy of so-called historical abuse though of course many of the abuses that that people suffered in 20th century Ireland are incredibly recent. So the four pillars are truth-telling, accountability, redress and reparations and then guarantees of non-recurrence and again I feel that the oral history which was motivated at least in part by a desire for restorative justice can in fact be a central plank as a model of best practice in terms of Ireland going forward in establishing transitional justice measures that will take us into a 21st century Ireland that will have as its central core principles respect for all citizens, particularly those who are socio-economically and economically vulnerable, that will take us into a shared future where we can all work together across all of the different social strata and identities to create a vibrant and better future for the younger people that the Magdalene women so thoughtfully made central to the generous donation of their oral histories.
1: Thanks for listening to To Preserve and Protect Contemporary Issues in Irish Cultural Heritage a podcast series from the Royal Irish Academy funded by the Heritage Council This podcast series was produced by Real Smart Media. To listen back to other episodes in the series, check out our page on the Royal Irish Academy's website at ria.ie.